Whether it's dismantling the fossil fuel industry, creating a solar-powered utopia, or simply desiring to hear more birds in the sky than planes, this is Idealistically, a podcast where we discuss what we would idealistically want in an ideal world. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Idealistically, which I suppose I should call the finale episode of season one or part one because we are coming to the end of 2021. I did always intend to make 12 episodes as my like initial target, my initial goal when creating this podcast and I've made it. We've spoken to 11 amazing guests and today will be the 12th. I don't want to get too mushy on you but it has been a really nice journey and experience so far and I'm so looking forward to creating more episodes in the next year. Something very satisfying that happened recently was Spotify releasing their wrapped list so you know the top five podcasts you listened to recently your favorite songs your favorite artists your favorite albums a bit exclusionary for those of you who don't use spotify and are listening to this on other podcast apps but i'm just really grateful for all the people who tagged and shared that idealistically made it to their top five because that means that you have listened to probably most of the episodes and have stuck with me and have been here as we've imagined new worlds and that just means a lot because I know I had no idea where this idea was going and the fact that people are actually listening and enjoying is is really nice. I'm really excited for this to be the last episode of this part one season one because this guest is so inspiring has so much wisdom and just beautiful words to to share with us so without further ado please let me introduce my 12th guest for this 12th amazing episode. I like all of my guests to introduce themselves. So if you want to go ahead and let let the people know who you are, that would be great. Oh, I'm like the worst person at doing intros for myself. <laughs> well, okay, I'll, I'll give it a good I'll give it a good try. Um, so I'm Daisy Gargi, um, and I am a climate justice activist. Um, my activism takes takes shape in many different forms whether it's more localized stuff like doing an artist residency at a local nature reserve um, and like teaching young people around climate and political literacy right around to some of the larger things like uh, what I'm most best known for which was being the youngest candidate to run in the European uh, for the European Parliament elections in 2019 um, and also what I'm currently doing now which is suing the government on their failure to meet the carbon budgets and their crazy dependency on technology that's unproven. Amazing that's one of like the reasons I wanted to talk to you specifically is because I feel like you have dipped your toes into many different forms of activism and not everyone's going to be able to do that but I think it'll be really interesting to hear from those different perspectives and, and those actions that you've taken so I'm really looking forward to that. So to like ease ourselves in, do you currently find it easy to envision an ideal world or is it a little bit trickier at the moment? How are you feeling? So, oh, so I remember like the first, the first article that I did was a Guardian article and there's one part that everyone always like tells me back again and it's the fact that I call myself a hopeless romantic when it comes to the environment. <laughs> so weirdly enough, like even though obviously I, I recognise 
the loss and the fear that everyone has around the climate crisis and what this means for not just humanity, but all living life, including the earth. Um, but I do have this level of like this, this crazy amount of quite gritty optimism and stubborn optimism around the climate crisis and where we're heading to go. Like I always remind myself that, you know, even though I've lived in a world without a stable climate, I've experienced vast amounts of joy and awe and wonder. And it's like, what is it going to be like when we get the world we deserve? <laughs> it's going to be like constantly being happy and high on life, you know? <laughs> so it's like, that's that's the hope, you know? And I, I, I kind of hold on to that because I know it's a possibility and I know with the power of people coming together to do stuff together, it will happen. Yeah. Is there anything that makes that easier? Like, is it people? Is it taking action? Like, where does that, how do you hold on to that? Because it must be quite difficult. Yeah, I think it is, it is, it is taking action and people like, you know, I'm quite lucky to have been, you know, thrown into diff many different types of activism with different cultures and different, you know, demographics taking place. And it's like, the fact that so many people can come together, no matter from what background they are, and find a commonality that's really deeply based in love and care and duty, um, that's revolutionary, you know. And like I was a, I was talking about one of my co-claimants called Peter, um, and it's like, when would I have ever met a seventy-seven-year-old man from Yorkshire? Um, <laughs> and become such close mates of him. When when would that ever happen in reality? And like, quite sadly, it wouldn't. But now we are bonding over our deep love for the world, for our oceans, for our seas, for our country. You know, and I think that's something that's you know that's that is is inspiring every single day. Yeah. Oh, that's so wholesome. That's so nice. I think I I find similar things. Like a lot of the people I've met through activism especially in my local area like our older people and although I definitely like crave younger connections sometimes like it is quite nice to get that kind of wisdom and the perspectives of older people so I, I, I love that definitely and this is why like, I'm a true believer in like this intersectional and intergenerational um, way to combat climate change because you know let's not forget Older people have like the wisdom and the knowledge, but we have the vision and the energy, you know, and like when we work together, it always turns up dynamic, you know? Yeah, definitely. You, you, we need, we need everyone. <laughs> That's the, the, the simple way of putting on it is just, we need everyone. Absolutely. So what is the first thing that comes into your mind when you envision your ideal world, whatever that looks like? What's what's the first thing that comes to to mind? Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind when I envision my ideal world is probably um, it's probably that sense of like really deep unity and care because like you know we always say like you know as a society we care for people but realistically um, we're still yet to see the product of this care you know but when we actually do base all of our actions and that you know radical care and understanding and empathy and like the real human emotions and human connection it will change the way we do everything you know whether it's that's how we like you know integrate with our neighborhoods how we talk to our you know like geographical community how we interact with government and policy you know it, it will change everything and I think that's like the most like you know visionary part of the new world I hope to see can you give like an example of what 
what that means to you like what what action would be you know caring and I don't know yeah an example of that so okay so like I always say like the best way is to change and create action very quickly is by changing your intention for everything you do you know so for example let's say that I change my intention to making sure that whenever I do anything it always comes from a place of love care honesty and duty to myself to my earth to one another um when I decide to go to the shop what are the choices I'm going to make when I decide to go um outside would I engage with people in a different way you know when I decide to do my activism what will be the roots and what action would that create if you know what I mean so it's like how like it's about like changing your mindset in order to see the world differently and be different within the world you know and show like as an example of what we could all be and I guess like you were saying if we could then get the people who maybe are in charge and in our governments to also apply that mindset we might get there (laughs) yeah like and there is so many different like you know especially historically there are many different cultures which do have this like real route to intention when creating actions like um for example like many indigenous communities they um they're called the the five generation rule by some of them and the whole idea is like you wouldn't do anything or make any decisions within your tribal community that will harm the next generations to come um so it's like the intention is protection the intention is radical care uh, and this is how decisions are made in some indigenous communities so it definitely is like it's not something that's brand new it's something that could be done and imagine if Boris Johnson and Pretty Patel actually tapped into care and empathy and love and duty for like our earth and our people whenever they make policies like you know like you know what I mean we'll be welcoming everyone to our island we'll be taking care of one another we won't be you know trying to run away from climate disaster you know like we would we would face it head on with the fundamentals of how we're going to build a new society imagine imagine if <laughs> imagine i know don't even get me in front of boris i, I will i'll tell him <laughs> <laughs> i love that actually what you're talking about there about like holding future generations kind of at, at the core of what you do that's actually reminds me of the book that i'm reading at the moment which is the ministry of Fu- ministry of the future and it basically is it's like a fictional storytelling of like climate action and if we created the ministry for the future so like the UN had had this this arm of people working for people of the future and it was just it's a really interesting concept yeah and even like I don't know if you know but in Wales they have something similar as well I can't remember the exact title but it's something like real OG (laughs) and I was like I wish (laughs) and it's like their whole job is to make sure that nothing happens in Welsh politics that can harm future generations you know and it's like that kind of like radical place of care of saying it's not just about us who are living here but it's about the world and how we can like literally nurture and preserve it for the next generation to come for people to experience the vast amounts of like joy awe, and wonder we get from our rivers our oceans our ancient woodlands and if you in the UK it's just like you know if only we can have like you know a whole department that's just you know that that does that work it would be it would be awesome it would be revolutionary yeah well thanks for that reminder go off wales yeah exactly it's like wales is always doing great stuff it's like we are too close for it to not rub up on us you know? <laughs> that's very true very true
So what would you keep from this current world? You say you're like a hopeless romantic and, you know, you can find so many great things in this current version of reality. So what are some of those things? That's a good, good question. I think what I would keep from this world, um, I think, oh, okay. So this is going to be slightly, I feel like maybe controversial for Sam. But I think what I'll keep from this world is like the way that we react to crises. Like, I, for example, like the pandemic. As soon as the pandemic hit, we returned back to our core, like beings, you know, like what did most people do? They bought a house plant. They went to their local parks. They figured out whether their neighbours need help. You know what I mean? And they turned to mutual aid. And it's like, that's something that's quite beautiful, that in a time, of mass hysteria and like craziness what we did is we actually returned to the people we should be you know and I feel like maybe you know if we worked out of that place a little bit more we would have you know a very different world and outlook but I think that's something that I would keep that kind of the, the resilience that hum- humanity has. I, I always I quite often will reference like that start of the pandemic where I was like hang on are we gonna keep mutual aid like is this gonna be a thing now and it makes me so sad that like all the Facebook groups have like gone dead silent and the whatsapp groups and it's like why why did you know why do we have to be in a panic to like keep those things exactly we shouldn't have to be in a panic and these should be staples of ours because you know like we have to remember you know people are meant to be the ones who hold the power to keep like governments and policymakers accountable and imagine if we had you know mutual aid groups that would be seeing things that are happening to refugees and saying actually enough's enough you know I mean? like imagine if we had that real big resistance against like corrupt government because like you know people don't like to say it because you know it kind of you kind of like walk the line with being like a conspiracy theorist but like our government is really corrupt and this isn't the democracy that you know was thought about and blueprinted about the democracy was always about meant to be about people power you know and it's like where do we see people power within the democracy that democracy quote unquote we live in it's not here we're seeing people's rights being stifled you know kill the bills just you know like a resistance to that you know and that's what I'd keep I'd keep that like real human resistance and resilience we are stronger together i think is a very simple but meaningful thing for us all to remember um in and not just in times of crisis for sure yeah exactly (laughs) just very briefly if, if you're open to doing so like would you be able to just talk a little bit about like how you got into what you do whether you describe it as like environmentalism climate justice like how did you where did it all come from so okay I've got many different versions of the story <laughs> I feel like that like you never really pin down like the moment that you were like yeah this is what's happening for me um but so okay so when I was younger my we moved to a house and it has a really lovely big tree um I remember my mum wanted to cut this tree down and I was so angry about it that I cried about it. And when the tree surgeons came, I refused to move. <laughs> and I stood in front of that tree and the tree surgeons were so appalled by this happening. They basically were like, 
yeah, we're not cutting down this tree till this kid moves. Um, and then I didn't. And then the tree still lives today. Aww. <laughs> exactly. And I walk past my tree every day. Melinda is her name. Um, <laughs> and I just go, thank God for you being here and igniting me to this deep need to protect my environment and protect the living beings around me. Um, and I think that's a really important part of like the beginnings of my activism. It wasn't, you know, like a trend. It was connecting to myself in order to realize that the only way that I can really experience joy in this world is by connecting to my surroundings and the thing that nurtures me. You know, like nature shows unconditional love to everyone. It gives us air to breathe. It gives us food to eat, even when arguably we don't deserve the kindness, you know? Um, so I think that was like the first time that I really kind of had that moment of like, wow, this is kind of this need to protect not just, you know, human life, but non-human life as well. And then the moment where like the more radical types of activism that I do started was um, in university. Um, well, actually, I think I'll go back a little bit more. <laughs> Sorry. So, like, do you know when it's like, if you don't say the whole thing, it doesn't make sense. It, it feels a bit jumpy. So I grew up in poverty in North London. Um, and then my mum started a restaurant, which moved us into the middle class quite quickly. And it was quite an abrupt change. And then next, I ended up being sent off to boarding school in Skegness, um, which is a small seaside town. Um, the boarding school was slightly weird because it wasn't a traditional boarding school. It's a very small boarding school, quite intimate. Uh, and my house parents were very much in touch with nature. Um, and this is where I kind of learned about, you know, how to love the land and learn about how to, you know, like grow my own food, how to take care of chickens and all of these kind of quite, you know, countryside living moments <laughs> that really changed my relationship with nature forever. Um, but when I came back to London, I ended up getting a little bit ill. Um, I ended up having some asthma related issues, which I had had as a child, but left when I moved to Skegness. So when I came back and was experiencing this, I kind of asked the question, like, why is this happening to me? And no doctor would give me like an answer that I felt was, you know, truthful. Um, so I started Googling like every other 16 year old, <laughs> whenever anything's wrong with her. And then I found out about the toxic levels of air pollution in London and found out that, you know, we are literally living, breathing in toxic air every day. Found out about the local incinerator in my area and how this is affecting birth rates, affecting infant mortality, affecting even like up to like the way our lungs develop um, by living in this area and breathing this air. And I had this moment of like, this is crazy. Why has no one told me about this? Why is this the first time I'm hearing this? And then just to further research and find out this like issue of justice is something that's not just a London air pollution issue, but it's something that is um, an issue all around the world because there is climate change. And there is a justice issue where the global south, people in the global south are adversely affected, even though they have actually contributed the least to this crisis. Um, and that made me angry. And for many years, I kind of did that. Do you know the individual change thing of like, what can I do? I can go zero waste. And I went like fanatically zero waste. And I can go vegetarian and vegan and all of this. And I focused on the me. What can I do as an individual? Um, but then I kind of got into that place of recognising that this isn't an individual's issue to hold. 
this is a collective issue. This is an issue that needs to be solved by all of us. Um, and during this, like, you know, like period, like I had some real depression and anxiety around the climate and what's going on, um, which I think is a very human, you know, response to finding out about this, like, massive miscarriage of justice. Um, and I was really depressed. And then one day to try and get me out of my depression mood, one early January, my friend told me about um, Extinction Rebellion and the fact that they were, seemed to be a really cool group who were doing great things. And I was very sceptical at first. <laughs> I thought, is this going to be like another meeting of where we're going to talk about carbon and say like people aren't <laughs> dying and like the, you know, the Amazon isn't burning, you know? <laughs> um, but weirdly enough, it wasn't, at least for me, it wasn't. It was this place of one where like my views on how bad the environment was getting was actually met with understanding and not like me being told I'm overreacting about what I'm saying um but then also like the urgency to change and the fact that this is based within community and I don't have to carry this on my own and I'm being supported and that was you know revolutionary for me and it changed my whole life literally in the matter of like hours um, and then by the next week, I decided to commit full time to XR and Extinction Rebellion Youth. Um, and I worked there for, for years, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of like it was very much like quite an accidental thing. So even though I always felt like I'd had this connection, like a really deep loving connection and, you know, like like love for the environment. But I never thought to be, you know, an activist or to be active within my actions within the world, you know, and that kind of just happened quite merely by coincidence you know thank you for for sharing your story um I always think it's I think it's important to share those stories because it highlights how it's like it's just normal people like <laughs> we're all just normal people who just one day were like ah I've had enough of this we're gonna do something about it um because I think there is this idea like a picture painted of like activists being these people who have always known and always done things since you know the day where they were born but like it doesn't happen like that for most people like we need those normal people to become activated your story about the tree which I, I love I think that's actually a really nice lead into my next question which was you know obviously in a way you protecting that tree was almost an act for the future like you know you wanted to make sure that tree stayed there for the future and I was kind of wondering, like, how has that shaped your vision for the future? Or how has it kind of, like, influenced how you view imagining a new world? I think it's just recognised that, like, you know, I grew up in a house that didn't really, like, didn't know about the climate crisis, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't come from, like, a long lineage of, like, you know, environmental activists, like many, you know, in back, uh, activists nowadays do come from. Um, I came from a place of where I experienced the injustice of the system. You know, as a woman who grew up in poverty, being black, being in an urban environment, I saw the reality of what bad policymaking and corrupt politicians can do. Uh, and I think, like, I could relate my own oppression from this system to the oppression that's happening to the earth, you know, and it's led to that very deep empathy. And I can empathise with people who are experiencing climate change at the forefront because I did too. You know, and I feel like that means that like a lot of my work is very much guided from my gut and from my heart rather than from my head. You know, I get the science. I want to talk about the science. But then also we have to remember that the heart space is left for us to talk about 
the people, the living beings. And when I say living beings, I always talk about like, you know, living beings, including the earth, because the earth and, you know, herself <laughs> is a living being, you know? Um, and it's like that, it really does just change the way that you look at everything when you kind of connect through it through a place of empathy. Because it's not just an issue of trees and life in that way, but it's an issue with like abuses of power, of learning how to treat each other like crap um and then doing the same to the earth but what's happening is the earth is fighting back and saying no more and we need to hear that i think some of the conversations i've been having recently is a lot more talk about how like these stories that are personal and do come from the heart like more and more people are experiencing them and more and more people have these stories to tell which is kind of just proving the whole point and it's like heartbreaking but at the same time like if more and more people are starting to realize actually this is touching them like hopefully <laughs> the more we can do about it exactly and I think you know my story is like the, probably like the least <laughs> you know what I mean like my like obviously it's sad but at the same time it's like I still have a huge amount of privilege you know and I know that I'm out of it you know I'm out of poverty and you know I hope to never return again because it's not nice but I know that there are still people who are living my existence that I did and I remember in the pandemic I like I had like a real moment so um, when I was growing up, I lived in a one-bedroom flat in Tottenham with no garden, no balcony or anything, as you would imagine, um, with my two brothers and my mum and my dad. Me and my two brothers shared one double bed, um, and then my mum slept on a sofa, typically, and my dad slept on the floor. And I knew that in the pandemic, someone else was probably living the same life that I did, um, and that it would be really difficult and it would be really hard. And there is no support for people who are in that position. Um, and that made me angry. And that was like, then I started thinking, how can I help the person who's experiencing this? You know, and that's what we call empathy. You know, it's like, how do we connect into the humanness of the crisis? But then also not even just the humanness, like the livingness of this crisis um, and see the same like sadness, but then also see this as like a moment to take action rather than sitting and waiting for things to get worse I think you also use it in your email signature but I know it's like a phrase commonly you know, used especially in like XR and climate movements of like love and rage it's like holding those two things together exactly and it's like yeah it's like it's remembering like the love for life and that you know the ideas of like awe and wonder and beauty and you know but then it's also remembering like we have the right to be fucking angry that like our governments are ruining our world. We have the right to be angry that our corporations aren't being of service to people. They're being of service to profit, which is literally like a concept of our imaginations when you think about it. You know, it's like what what's actually here is like our world, our earth is real. But the idea of money is, is it's one that humans have created for ourselves, you know, and it's like, why are we serving that? when we are watching people dying, we are watching people suffering, we are watching people, you know, like go through very hard things. And we're watching the earth telling us to stop doing this to ourselves. And we're not hearing it, you know, 
Yeah, I bring up that money point like one too many times at the moment. Like it's just the thing that I keep remembering. I'm like, it's all made up. Why can't you all just see this? <laughs> it's like, it's when you have like the rude awakening that like everything you've told is basically a lie. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> it's like when you actually understand like the idea of like money is literally fake money because like there is no currency that it holds on to. And like the fact that like our economy is a pie chart. So if there are multiple amounts of billionaires, this means they're literally stealing from everyone else you know <laughs> it's like let's frame like issues in in a way that's a bit like brute honesty because when we use flowery language and we like get scared of using the word corruption and like negligence and words like this that actually describe the reality like that's when you get government like being able to run rogue and no one hold them accountable so people don't know because we're not using language that speaks to truth So I wanted to talk about, again, like more about what the different things that you've done, because you have done so much, um, which is really amazing. And again, I'm I'm just grateful you're here and talking because I know how busy you are. What are, for those of you who don't know, I know you briefly introduced yourself, but what are some of the different ways that you've engaged in better world making? (laughs) Better world making. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Um, like, let me think. There are some that I can't talk about, and I think everyone who's listening will know why. (laughs) Yes, I I like to get myself in spicy actions. Um, but, um, the things that I can talk about that I really do enjoy is the stuff that, there are some stuff I do to help the present, but there are stuff that I do to help the future. And I think that's kind of how I see my activism. So, like, for example, the present is through grassroots organising, through protesting, through being on the street, being present, educating people about what's happening and the tools they can use to fight for ourselves, you know, and our earth. Um, so that's kind of more of my present stuff. Um, even, for example, like, you know, as I said, like, I don't really believe in the sham economy, the current one that we have. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I recognise that people still live within the system. And if there's a way that for the time being, I can make it easier on change makers to be able to create the change that I know that needs to happen so we can be like post-capitalism, you know, it's like that's the work I'm going to do. So I do a lot of work in pushing social social funding um, around funding young people. Um, I work as a trustee in a charity called Belgrave. Um, and we're a charity that prioritises and making the future better for the youth. Um, and we just had, like, last year, we started a grant called Challenge and Change. And it was meant to shake up the grant funding world, um, as the idea was is accessible to all young people. Uh, we want people with lived experience of the issues that they, they are facing to be able to come up with their own campaigns and to have between one to £10,000 to start it. Uh, either you could be at the beginnings of where it's just an idea or you could even done some yourself as long as it's youth led we're here to hear it and many different you know like uh, issues from the refugee crisis to racial injustice to climate crisis to you know like youth imprisonment all sorts of issues and you know we've seen like how changing this and like giving people who would be typically you know from low economic backgrounds The space and time to be activists, that typically is a privilege for some, 
it changes everything and we've had some like amazing projects come through like there's a there's a lovely uh, lovely woman called Nadine who does work on helping people go from the prison system into everyday life um and she herself had experienced incarceration at a young age um and now she creates things to show people like you know how to do the basic things that like we you know people who aren't haven't been incarcerated kind of think as like no-brainers but people who have been live like in the system it's difficult to transition into a different world that like has different rules and so and so so how to get social housing how to be able to you know cook and clean for yourself and all of these kind of things um and it's changing the lives of many young people who are leaving prison to have the hope of a new world and a new life you know and it's like that obviously one day we hope that prisons don't exist and we hope that we don't have to use capitalism to help people but for now we can't ignore the suffering that's happening in the world and we have to do something to help the immediate people who are facing this um so that's like you know more of like the present and then the future stuff is the things like doing visioning and storytelling about the world that we could have what we do have now you know stopping harm like you know the court case uh of where they're suing the government about their inaction um as especially so i'll talk about the court case because it's a bit yeah absolutely it's like a less sexy court case than some of the court cases that are happening because <laughs> it's very much like you'd have to be a nerd to be fully into it but when you understand the ingenious of it like you know by no like you know i didn't think is like everything by the way so like, i'm not calling myself a genius but <laughs> when you think of like how amazing like it could be if it succeeds it's like it's mad so essentially the government creates carbon budgets that they're meant to follow and it's meant to kind of basically say like we can we will create policies that will ensure that we get to net zero by 2050 which we all know is already bullshit um we all know that that's not compatible with the science that we have that claims that we should get to you know net zero by 2030 and ideally we should get to net zero by 2025 because we should take on the responsibility for causing this mess and be the real climate leaders um, that Boris is claiming to be. <laughs> but um, within the law, you have to sue about things that they have created, like within the framework they create for themselves. So we're basically saying the government, at first we said the government hasn't, you know, addressed the last three carbon budgets and they've left massive gaps in policy. But what's happened over this week is they've released a net zero strategy, which is meant to get us to net zero by 2050. This strategy is basically a bunch of old policies which have been lumped into new packaging to tell people that they're doing something amazing. It addresses the fourth and maybe the fifth carbon budget. Doesn't, as far as you know, obviously I'm not like a policy maker, but I don't think it addresses the sixth carbon budget to the levels that we need it to. But then also it's heavily dependent on net zero technology which is unproven in the mass scale and even the bits that are proven could lead to quite a lot of social justice issues like for example if we have to grow bio you know like biofuels we would need land mass and in order to have land mass like some um some like uh, some people have said that we would need two to three times the size of india to grow the materials that are needed yep for some of the net zero technology um but when we do this where are we going to find this land and we know from from history it's probably going to be in the global south <laughs> where they're going to go for land grabs you know what i mean like 
the you know like the behaviors that have already been exhibited from these countries that refuse to address you know the climate crisis from the roots which is colonialism capitalism and in our country it's the enclosure and the theft of land from the commoners you know and it's like this is quite scary because what they're doing is they're playing Russian roulette with our future. They're gambling because if this doesn't work, we would have already polluted a crazy amount and be unable to clean anything up. And this is even with the mindset, remembering that this is with the 2050 target rather than the 2030 one. So it's like, you get I me, mean? there's so many levels of like fucked up. <laughs> So our suit is meant to bring them to account and say, you can't keep doing this. You can't put our human rights at risk because you refuse to acknowledge the problem that's literally on our doorstep, you know. Uh, and that's what the case is about. I'm joined by the amazing, amazing Peter um, Garford, who uh, is my co-claimant. He is a lovely 77-year-old man. He was like the best thing ever. Um, I met him for the first time this weekend. And when I say, like, meeting someone who's literally, like, about to lose everything they've ever worked for because of the climate crisis and because not even government in action, but it's actively government abusing our citizens. It's crazy. Peter, you know, bought his house when he retired in his 50s and expecting to live there to the end of his life with his lovely wife, Sheila. But they are around two metres away from being evicted because the sea is eating their land. Um, Peter was telling me how, you know, like between his house and the seafront around 20 years ago, which is literally my whole lifetime, there were around four to five rows of houses and a main road. And all of that is gone. And now it's been eaten to the point of where his garden is like nothing in comparison to what it used to be. And he is going to be his house is going to be demolished. And that's here in the UK? That is here in the UK, in Yorkshire. And he's a Yorkshire proud man who loves his country and loves his seaside. And he's watching government not only refuse to protect and create barriers to stop coastal erosion in his area, but he's actively watching his council sell the sands that could be used to protect his land and where, you know, like his... um where his neighbours are, and they're selling it to different countries like, you know, like um, Amsterdam and, well, different cities like Amsterdam and Germany in order for them to protect their <laughs> coastals from coastal erosion. So it's actively, like, it's, it's our government making us the victims, you know? And it's like, where's the compensation for the people who've already lost their homes? It's not there. They're being told that they'll be given a council flat and still be expected to pay rent. Peter, 75, uh, 77, he thought he was going to retire in this home. He bought his home. He used everything he had. And now he's having to go back into work to figure out how he's going to support himself as a 77-year-old man and his wife. This is the reality of climate change. And this is not happening anywhere else. This is happening on our shores. Yeah, that is actually shocking that we don't hear about this enough. Like... We think we don't, you know, we don't hear hardly enough about, you know, stuff elsewhere in the global south, places where we're getting, you know, have been hit by this for much longer than we have in the UK. But the fact we don't even hear about it on our homeland is, it really is shocking. Exactly. Exactly. It's so crazy. Um, and I think this is the moment of it, especially like Peter's courage is like massive. 
um to do this and like this it should be the time where peace is like you know i don't know like going and doing golf and all of this but instead he's fighting you know not just for us because he knows his house is gone he knows it's too late for him but he's fighting for another generation to not have to face this issue you know and there is something that's really powerful about his resilience and his knowledge and his care for his community that I think all of us need to learn from, you know, and we are at the very beginnings of this suit. We're currently trying to raise the adverse costs at the moment via a crowd fundraiser, which is in my bio. Um, <laughs> it will be in the description of this podcast. <laughs> Yay! But yeah, but it is just to hold them to account. They can't continue to do this. Um, and this, especially with the Skipsy community, this is not coastal erosion that's happened within the fi- last five years. This has been happening for the last 20 years and no one has done anything about it. Enough's enough. What is the ideal outcome if you win? Like what will happen next? What would you want to happen if you win the case? Oh, so if we win the case, obviously, like, mass celebration. <laughs> um, Party first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what we all do is, one, show the power of the people and remind the government that they are merely of service to us. And that is their, like, core responsibility is to protect us. And if they're not doing it, we will hold them to account. Um, so it will be, like, a very rude awakening. But then also what it would do is essentially change the way that policy can be written. Um, because the government will have to start writing policies that they can keep, which would be awesome. And they can't continue to push like the issue of climate change to the next generation by depending on technology that's highly controversial. They would either have to, you know, stop polluting um, and starting to address, you know, the issues that are happening here um, or at least like find ways to work with nature in creating a way to um to to stop the effects of climate change and produce net zero well we are all rooting for you <laughs> you're not the first person on this po- podcast to be involved in a uh, a court case suing the government so i'm i'm quite proud of that actually second second guest amazing <laughs> <laughs> but there is like a like a community now of people who are entering into climate litigation over many different issues like air pollution carbon budgets stop cambo like it's it's quite amazing we are hitting them from all fronts especially with cop being on our doorstep um it makes sure that they know we are here to kick up a fuss <laughs> you know we won't allow them to continue calling themselves the climate leaders and saying how easy it is to be green when realistically they're putting us all at risk for dire consequences and they don't care Coming, wrapping up towards the end, what, this is a fun question, hopefully you'll find it quite fun, what is something in your ideal world, in Daisy's ideal world, that you would invent, and it can be absolutely anything, it can be something silly, it can be something serious, meaningful, whatever you want, what would you invent? Like, oh, okay, what would I invent? I have like so much power in my hands now, I'm like, what would I invent? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, okay. I think I would invent like a problem solving machine and then you can just like kind of like shoot it at people and then you know like the problems that they have will just go away and then like obviously shoot at the earth climate 
changes over <laughs> shoot it at you know government and then like they would stop being shit shoot it at boris and he could probably implode because i don't think he has like <laughs> i don't think he could stop being shit <laughs> <laughs> he has no redeeming qualities really. <laughs> but i think that's what i would do that's what i would do i would go around and say like solve everyone's problems and then we'll just have like a ideal rocking world <laughs> the magic Problem-solving shooter. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so in this caring, united world with possibly a problem-solving shooter and a government (laughs) who have been successfully sued in court, what is one thing that listeners can do to make that a reality? What can we do to help? I think, obviously, I'm going to plug myself, like, very, very shamelessly and be like, yeah, please support our fundraiser. It's good, like... (laughs) This stuff, sadly, obviously, within the system that we're in, it, it does take money to kind of do, especially around climate litigation, it takes a lot of money. Um, and it's to support the people who are doing this work. But then also it's support the frontline communities and the people who are facing the adverse amounts of, you know, like the climate change and other social issues. We have to remember that, like, you know, if our government won't stand up for us, we have to stand up for ourselves you know, and we have to form community. Um, and I think that's very important. It's, it's help your community, get in touch with your community. You know, I grew up in London and I didn't know what community was because everyone lives so isolated. Everyone's so inducted into a system that's causing anxiety and depression all around, you know, but it's about how do we connect back to people? How do we connect back to our earth, especially in urban environments? You know, I found my love of foraging which is how I connect back to nature in in a brick city you know (laughs) but then it's like you know how do we just be the humans we need to be um and I think that's something that everyone has to figure out on their own quite sadly and I don't think I could give the magic answer (laughs) because there isn't and everyone has a different part to play you know absolutely again goes back to the fact that we need everyone we need everyone to be doing whatever they can well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sending all the best of luck to you with everything that you're doing. Thank you for sharing all the amazing things that you are doing for better world making. Um, yeah, it's it's great to hear of, of young people just pushing through. Like it takes a lot of effort and hard work. So I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. And I appreciate your work too, spreading the arts to everyone and communicating climate change in many different ways, Tori. You're awesome. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you so much once again for listening whether you have listened to one episode or if you've followed all the way through to episode 12 it means a lot to me. You can stay up to date with me on social media at, at Tomea which is spelled T-O-L-M-E-I-A or you can follow the podcast directly at, at idealisticallypod on Instagram and at idealisticallyp on Twitter where I will be updating in the meantime where I take a little bit of a break between this episode and the next. Of course please feel free to rate 
like, subscribe, leave a review. If you're on Apple Podcasts, do whatever you can to share and support this podcast because it means we will be able to share more revolutionary ideas for radical futures with even more people. If you've reached this far, why not even go on social media and let me know which was your favourite episode, which was your favourite world that you would like to go into in the future what inventions were your favourite and what would you like to see become reality? I would love to know and I'd love to know what you would idealistically want in an ideal world. Sound and editing by myself and music by Stowe Gregory. <laughs>